Yeah, we're starting a new series this morning. If you looked at the board on the way in, uh, did anyone notice the board? Uh, God's Word, our story, and uh, we're going to be picking up on that this morning, uh, Nehemiah. <clears throat> yeah, so you, uh, I think uh, Evan was asking, what is this? <laughs> so I was just telling him it's a compass, and it's a reminder uh, that we're going to plot our path and uh, navigate our way through God's Word in our decision-making, in our life, in, in, in all aspects, God's Word, um, the entrance of His Word brings light and, and I pray brings revelation and there's spiritual truths that come out of that and principles that we would live by. So this morning we're embarking on what's hopefully going to be the one, one of the most profitable spiritual joy, voyages that you've been on and it's going to be through the book of Nehemiah. The late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, no one leaps out of the pages of the Old Testament and grabs your attention as does Nehemiah. It's been said to enter into a career, whether it's in business, uh, the world, or Christian ministry, uh, with, without an understanding of the spiritual principles of, that hold life together is, is, is foolishness. It's utter foolishness. And many of those principles are illustrated most powerfully in the story of Nehemiah. And I'm thankful for you know, the Bible Project. If you ever want to start a book, it's a great place to go on YouTube and just look at, at that book and, and get some thoughts as to the overview or the synopsis. And I'm just going to draw a few things out of that um, as, we, as we go into this this morning. Um, and uh, we're just going to look at the first two chapters, which sounds, it is quite a, a chunky thing, but the early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching, but they were also devoted to the public reading of Scripture. And so that's something we're going to do this morning, a, a, a sizable chunk. Uh, I can't promise that we'll read the whole book of Nehemiah in these seven weeks, um, but you will be reading it, I trust, in your own time. And uh, each preacher may draw aspects of those chapters that they're covering. And so um, as we cover 13 chapters of Nehemiah, we'll see how greatly God cares for His city, His people, His kingdom. And through one of the lowest moments in in, in the history of God's people, he raised up an extraordinary servant to accomplish the daunting task of rebuilding city walls, the city walls of Jerusalem and the people within those walls. And so Nehemiah, he's a remarkable leader, but God himself is the ultimate hero of the story. I hope you, you get to hear that. And, and actually, he's the ultimate hero of every biblical book um, in the Bible. So in most modern Bibles, these um, books are separated, Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, but the division happened long after it was written. Originally, it was a unified work by a single author. And the story is set after the Babylonians have destroyed Jerusalem and uh, its temple. And they've taken many into exile. Um, you know, we had, think refugees are a problem today. But actually, they were a problem there where they had to flee um, and leave their country and their people and and the book picks up about 50 years later in the spring and summer of 445 BC and tells of the return of some of the Israelites to Jerusalem. And so chronologically, it's actually at, the, at nearly the, one of the last books of the Old Testament because it's before the 400 silent years. And, and we see that uh, just before Christ's return, you know, his first coming. And so then it's written in a very... Um, readable style, a narrative style. It's kind of like a memoir almost. Um, and what happened and when they rebuilt the city and, and their lives. 
and it focuses on three leaders uh, who rebuild their, uh, their, their, their basic rebuilding efforts. So the first one we won't really look at, but Zerubbabel, and then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. So we're kind of picking up the story with Nehemiah. But uh, the first one, you know, Zerubbabel, his name means planted in Babylon. Imagine being called that. I mean, it's like, thank you so much. <laughs> uh, and he ends up leading a large group of people back to Jerusalem, and they rebuilt the temple under the, the prophets of Haggai and Zechariah. And then in 2 Chronicles 36, 22, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. That's very important that it was written down because you'll see how God uses that later on with subsequent kings. But it was written down. And uh, verse 23 continues. This is what King Cyrus or Cyrus, king of Persia, says. I think there's the slides on these two verses. Um, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judea. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord their God be with them. So that's the fulfillment of a promise made to Jeremiah or made by the prophet Jeremiah. And uh, these exiles are going to return to Jerusalem. Isaiah's actually saying that the pagan king Cyrus, he will be God's shepherd. Isaiah actually calls him that, God's shepherd. A pagan king being called God's shepherd. It's, you know, God uh, can use whom he chooses. And he chooses to use this particular king. Uh, and so th that lines up with Proverbs 21. Have you ever read verse 1 of Proverbs? It speaks about the heart of a king is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. That's, um, so God can and does use unsaved, secular kings, pagan kings. He will use them to fulfill his purpose. He's sovereign. And so as I've said, and maybe people tease me about it, God's large and God's in charge. He is no matter how exiled people are or no matter how messed up things are, God has a redemptive purpose. And the fulfillment of that purpose should trigger hopes in, in the fulfillment of many other prophetic promises. You know, God's uh, word is unbreakable, therefore our hope is unshakable. And you can remember that God's word is never going to pass away. Heaven and earth pass away, but God's word will remain. It will stand forever. And so... We see that there's a hope for a future messianic king from the line of David. There's a hope for a temple where God's presence will dwell with his people. There's hope for God's kingdom to come over all nations and bring his blessing, just like he promised Abraham. Friends, hindsight is a wonderful thing. How many times we look back and think, oh, yes, yes, yes. We can see that the dots join together. Because um, it is. Christ in us, the hope of glory. But you and I are now a fulfillment of that hope in being a temple of the Holy Spirit. We're carrying His presence. And we've been given the great commission to go into all the world. As Abby's going into another part of the world, down south, and being a blessing. Well, she's blessed to be a blessing. And so we carry on the storyline about 60 years after Zerubbabel. Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the Torah and rebuild the community. So there's a, a kind of reformation or a rebuilding through Zerubbabel, then through Ezra in terms of, of bringing people back to the word of God. And then we see that Nehemiah, he starts by leading the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. 
and they're all designed to be in parallel. Each begins with the king of Persia and prompted by God to send the leader to Jerusalem. And then he offers some support, some resources. And then each, each leader encounters opposition and, uh, in their efforts, which they overcome. But each aspect of the rebuilding leads to a strange sort of anticlimax. So we won't get to look at Zerubbabel and Ezra's kind of anticlimax, but we will look at Nehemiah's. Unless I get ahead of myself, let's pick up in Nehemiah 1. Now, as I said, we devoted to the public reading of Scripture. And this is, stick with me. It's, it's uh, some verses and, and we're going to, on the back of that, speak a little bit around them and then go into chapter 2. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Jerusalem is in a sorry state there's a decline in spirituality. There's an increase in apathy. And Nehemiah, in his prominent position in the Persian Empire, he sees that as, as secondary to achieving God's purposes for his holy city. So friends, let's bring it forward to today. You and I, we see modern walls, which God inspired and instructed us to build, like identity, like marriage, like family life. We see these walls broken down. And it's how do we react what does it do to us when we see God's principles disregarded, His walls broken down? Do our personal concerns or our career or our ambition, does that come secondary? Do we put that secondary to, to God's concerns? You see, Nehemiah sought first the kingdom and so must we. He reacted when he heard the news of the walls of Jerusalem, which was still in ruins and the city gates burned to the ground. He sat down and he wept. He wasn't the only person to weep over the condition of Jerusalem. Jesus wept over 
Jerusalem. He wept for the city. And the first thing to do when faced with disaster or loss is to face it and feel it. That's the first spiritual principle. Before anyone, this is point one, before anyone can receive a blessing, someone else has to be willing to bear a burden. Look around you and see things as they are, not as you would like them to be. Are you aware of any broken down walls? Possibly personal, devotional life that may be being neglected or broken down. Maybe areas of unrighteousness where you've seen, you've given leeway or given um, a foothold or a toehold or an angle hold or a stronghold to the enemy and he seems to have got his foot in the door. Are there areas within your family, within your marriage? Is there something that you should be grieving at the moment? A ruin that you're not prepared to acknowledge? Remember, you can't begin to rebuild a crumbling wall until you first are willing to mourn over it and recognize that it's grievous. Turn to fervent prayer, believing prayer like Nehemiah did. Ask yourself the question, what do I need to do? What am I willing to do? What does God want me to do or have me do? And then what will bring God honor and glory? And Nehemiah, he reminds the Almighty of his greatness and awesomeness and the fact that God is a covenant-keeping God. And he stands both in awe and in adoration before him, acknowledging or, or recognizing his sovereignty. And, and that brings us to the second principle. The greater God becomes to him, the smaller his problem seems in comparison. Big God, big God, small problem, big God. And his attitude of reverent submission is moved to confess the sins of his people, their disobedience, and what I've called, what many have called identificational repentance or vicarious repentance. It's, 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 it's personalizing it, not saying, well, Lord, forgive them. No, no, it's saying, God, I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips, but my eyes have seen you. And I'm saying, God, take the coal, cleanse my lips, here I am. A little bit like Isaiah. And... Uh, Usually sin is the cause of our failures and where there's sin, it must always be confessed. I've heard what's well, been said. The self-sufficient do not need to pray. They merely talk to themselves. The self-satisfied will not pray. They have no knowledge of their need. The self-righteous cannot pray. They have no basis on which to come to God. But that brings us to the third principle. God does not hear our prayers so much as he hears us. What do I mean by that? It's got to be heartfelt. We've got to put ourselves into our prayers. You see, Nehemiah continued entreating the Lord's favor for four months. You don't pick that up so easily in the story. He prayed and he fasted and he wept and he sought the Lord for four months. That's persistence in prayer. He wept, he mourned, he fasted, he prayed. And then in chapter two, we see him waiting for an answer to his prayer. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was being brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? 
Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, I have letters to the governors of Transphrates that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so that he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I'll occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and I gave them the king's letters. And the king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. And by night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate. Sounds quite examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing because as yet I'd said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who'd be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, as, as Donna said this morning, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official and Gershom the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you, are you doing? They asked, are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Quite some, some uh, truth we can extract from this. He knew the need. Nehemiah, he saw it. He didn't just rush in and tackle the task immediately. He recognized for success in the work he wanted to, to do for the Lord, he realized that he not only got, needed God's blessing and direction, but also he needed the favor of the king. And as it happened, he didn't have to speak to the king. The king spoke to him. He shares the reason for his sadness, the burden of his heart, the deep conviction of his soul. And now it doesn't need to be hidden anymore. The initiative is now in God's um, hands, really, because it's like, okay, no, I'm carrying this, I'm carrying this, I'm carrying this. Now it's out there and it's all in your hands, God, as to what happens from here on out. And uh, he goes on, it says in the fourth principle, uh, spiritual principle, a right action can turn out to be wrong simply because it was mistimed. You see, God's timing's perfect. Ours is not. And when, we, when I felt the call of God to Turkey, I can just remember thinking, 
I need to go. I've done this gap year, take the nation's team, similar to what, 30 years ago, actually, this year. And my daughter's following in my steps, not to take the nation's team, but a different gap year. But what an amazing opportunity. And I went there and I thought, Turkey, Turkey, Turkey. They even had a flag. Every time we prayed, I was under the Turkish flag. And, and I went on a prayer journey at the end of that year. And I thought, God, here I am. Let's go. And then I, I remember standing in a line and they were praying over people and sharing words that they felt the Lord give them for people. And this guy said, I have a strange picture of an alarm clock. And I feel God says, throw away the alarm clock. And he didn't know anything about my life. And I just knew exactly God was saying I needed to Allow his timing, not mine. I didn't think I'd go to Turkey as a married man. I didn't even think I would go with children. That was the furthest thing from my mind. I was Russ Cliff after Cliff Richard, the bachelor boy, till my dying day. That was my nickname. <laughs> but I was wrong, sincerely wrong. <laughs> and so God set me free. But anyway, I ended up... Um, God's timing, it was seven years actually, which is always a good number. There's seven kind of principles I'm picking up this morning. But seven... Seven years before I ended up with BB going to Turkey. And uh, I needed to know, if I was going to be involved in, in pioneering a work, I needed to know what church government and church leadership, and I needed to know a lot of things. And I had to be mentored, and I had to be coached, and fathered, and spiritually discipled before I could just head off. And so that thing is timing, is so important. In Acts 17, 22, 27, it says, God's determined allotted periods and boundary of mankind's dwelling place. In other words, there's times, there's spaces, and there's places that God has for you. For such a time as this, you are here, and I'm here. But uh, before delivering his petition, Nehemiah, he's got, he's, he's got a well-thought presentation. It's not like he just speaks off the cuff. He's waited for four months for this moment, preparing himself, planning, strategizing. It's like a business plan is there. He just hasn't had the opportunity to, to do the presentation. And uh, he he's silently lifts his heart in prayer, possibly saying something like, Lord, help me draw on the resources as I face this difficult moment. How do I speak to the king right now? And uh, the passionate, persistent, prolonged pleading with the Lord in the preceding four months have positioned him for such a time as this. You see, only one person had the resources to help rebuild the city of, of Jerusalem, Artaxerxes. He had the means. He had the resources. He was the, 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 the person that he was going to, God was going to use. And, um, and he's, he's also the one who granted protection, safe passage with the king's seal and the letter of authority for the timber required and, to, and also God's gracious hand upon, upon it. And so sent, safe, supplied. Sent, safe, supplied. It's so important if we to be successful in what we do for God and encourage us to be bold and big, bold and big, big and bold in our praying. And one, as one hymnist put it, we are coming to a king, large petitions we must bring. That's the fifth spiritual principle. We receive not because we ask not. And when we ask, we must need to be asked in faith. So that also leads me to the, the next principle. And, and uh, the, with God's dreams come devil schemes. You see, Sanballat and Tobiah, they rise up in opposition. I don't know a move of God that hasn't been opposed. One thing's for sure, when we stand up and we count it as the citizens of the kingdom of God, Satan will throw his weight up against us. If you think of every beachhead, if you think of every birthing of anything, even when Moses was born, he was a deliverer leader, they tried to kill him. 
and he was delivered through the bulrushes in the, in the basket. And, and Jesus, when he was about to be born, they killed the babies. They're still killing babies today. Friends, it's, there's deliverer leaders that are going to be born. And there's an assault on the birthing process of, of deliverer leaders and deliverance to the nations and, and coming to the king. And I think we've got to recognize that, that we're in a battle. You see, battles aren't won seated in the trenches. You don't win a battle seated in a trench. If you want a spiritual battle, if you don't want a spiritual battle, then stay seated. With the, with the walls of the kingdom are flattened in this nation by unbelief and neglect. But then how can we stay seated? We can't. Help, we can't have, God help us to, to be strong and to be courageous, very courageous, to stand up, to be counted. Help us identify the difficulties, to weep in the night over the ruins, to wrestle in some dark Gethsemane in prayer. That means taking a short look at the problems and a long look at God. A long look at God. We've got to ask the questions. What's the reality on the ground? What needs to be done? What can be done? Every military person, every officer is taught, well, in the Syrian army, I was told, what's happening, what's not happening, what can I do about it? And those are good questions. What's happening, what's not happening, what can I do about it? You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Come, let us rebuild the wall. We'll no longer be in disgrace. You see, ruined walls do not glorify God. And what needs rebuilding in your life? Don't be, don't be intimidated by the detractors or the naysayers that say in effect like, and, and we need to respond like Nehemiah did when, when we faced with that. Make all the threats you like. We will not be diverted from building the walls God, in God's kingdom and bringing praise and glory to our king. I'm standing on God's territory and you have no right to be anywhere near it. In the name of Jesus, get out. That's the kind of authority we need to rise up with. You see, William Carey is a missionary to India who, who achieved a remarkable things. A humble man, a cobbler that God used incredibly because he was, a, he was just willing to be available. And uh, he said, in effect, he said this, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. That's biblical. Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly and measurably more than we could ask or imagine according to power within us. You see, it's his power at work within us. It's not us trying to conjure up, make it, manufacture it, drum it up. <laughs> it's him that's at work within us. And friends, that's, that's what I've got in my heart for this morning. That we're going to need to arise. We're going to need to take stock. We're going to need to recognize, God, there's a relationship that's broken down. I've got to tr trust. I'm going to pray into this relationship. And you're going to make it possible for me to be restored in that relationship. Whether they're going to initiate the conversation or whether I'm going to speak into I don't know how you're going to do it, but I need to do it. And in another area, or another area, or another area, whatever area you've recognized in your own life, to take back ground, to take back ground, to say, I'm not going to allow this ground to be lost to the enemy. Um, and it might be prayer. I think there's a, God, prayer precedes a move of God. It has to. And there's prayer that's been started and it's growing. In Paula's house on a Friday night, you're welcome to join her, that many of the ladies are joining in, in that prayer time. And we're seeing the effects. We're seeing the changes. It will start with us in our hearts and our lives, and then it will work itself out. And on Tuesday nights, we pray here. And I just want to encourage you because it's, it's the pattern. 
the spiritual principle. There was, he went to prayer, and then he saw some breakthroughs, and then he took some you know, steps, some strategies that God gave him. Okay, what do I do here? What do I do there? And then he started to see the, you know, the fruits of that, and which we're going to unpack in the weeks and, uh, and uh, months. No, it'll be seven weeks. So, Father, I want to thank you that right now there's so much that you're wanting to, to challenge us and, and stir our hearts to and, and help us to rise up out of indifference or apathy, especially when the prevailing spirit is unbelief or, or just you know, dumbing down Christianity or just almost saying that it's, it's boring, irrelevant, untrue, whatever it is, whatever the, the world's trying to dis, be dismissive of. But God, we know the truth that's within us. We know that your promises are true and amen. And they're never going to pass away. And you're going to hold those promises and you're going to move as you've promised to move. And you, your glory is going to be poured out in a, uh, as the waters cover the sea, Lord. And I, and I want to thank you, Father, that the latter rain will be greater than the former. And I want to thank you that your glory will be ever increasing because it's in your people. And your people are more and more will come to faith and more and more will shine brighter and brighter till the fullness of day. You've promised that the righteous will, will shine brighter and brighter till the fullness of day. So help us be instruments of, of light and love and your spirit to shine into this dark world, to give hope to the hopeless, to give light where there's darkness, to, to be uh, the ones that can say that your Redeemer lives. There's a Redeemer that wants to save you out of slavery and bondage and rescue you and, and, and have you reached out and responded to his arm even of salvation because he's reaching out to you and I, I pray God give us that boldness this morning to to offer that lifeline it's your lifeline you are the savior we can't save anyone but you are a great savior and we thank you that Lord you are mighty to save and deliver and re-establish and rebuild the walls in our lives and also in the city and in this nation and we trust you for that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.